the service like this, a communion service, much smaller at our residential home in New Haven Road, we call it Beulah, that's the name of the place, and I related something uh, somewhat to the amusement of the residents there that had happened to me a couple of days before on the Monday. Monday is our day off when we collapse in a heap after the day of rest. That's today. And uh, Nita said to me, why don't you nip out into Morningside and get a newspaper and bring me a fruit scone? So I got a newspaper and then I walked in Morningside where we live and went into Greg's and I suddenly had an inkling. I thought, I'd really like a nice cream cake. And in fact, they had a whole tray of the ones that I particularly liked. So I turned to the assistant and said, I'd like a fruit scone, please. And, and I looked at this tray of cakes in question. <laughs> and this is really frightening. My mind went completely blank. I just couldn't think of what they were called. And so I pointed and said, and, uh, um, uh, and she said, do you mean any Claire? And I said, yes, that's it. And I said, I'm really sorry, I'm having a senior moment. Now when I told the residents in our old people's home, they all laughed because they all know what senior moments are. Now you young people don't, you think, crazy, it must be going mad, you know. It will happen to you. Later or probably sooner. Of course, forgetting what a cream cake is called is not all that important. If I forget your name, that's a bit more serious, but you'll now understand why when I shake your hand and say, Hi, nice to see you, um, hmm, and I can't remember the name. And if I forget my wedding anniversary, that is a lot more serious and my wife may not understand. Now, if you're here this morning, we were thinking about what it means to forget the word forget in the Bible and to remember, which is the positive side. And both of these words, forget and remember, in Hebrew and Greek, mean more than just to do with memory. They always relate memory to action. For example, next Saturday, which is our wedding anniversary, we could get it on that morning and Nita could say halfway through the day, did you forget our wedding anniversary? And I could say, oh, it's today, isn't it? June the 11th. Why did she think I'd forgotten it? Well, because I hadn't marked it in any significant way. I hadn't done anything about it. I hadn't sent her a card given her any flowers or got her a nice present and after this sermon there's no way I'm going to forget it this time. <laughs> now, important though your wedding anniversary is if you're fortunate enough to be married. If you're a Christian it's not the most important day. For the Christian the most important day in the past, in human history in our personal history is the death of Jesus. And yet we can so easily forget, fail to remember what happened. It doesn't mean it's wiped out of your memory. It means you fail to recall 
the significance of that particular day and what it means to you as a Christian. Now, on the night when he was betrayed, the Gospels tell us that the Lord Jesus Christ met with his chosen twelve disciples for a last meal. It was a Passover meal, a Jewish Passover meal in which they celebrated their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And he gave this meal a new significance in relation to his death, which he knew would occur the next day when he would be crucified. And in order that they might not forget his death and its significance, he told them to do something to help them to remember. What did he do? He gave them some bread to eat and some wine to drink and he said, do this in remembrance of me. Christians call this occasion, this act, by different names. Some call it the Eucharist, from the Greek word for thanksgiving. Others emphasise it's a shared meal and they call it communion. Yet others referring to the place where it takes place call it the Lord's table. The New Testament describes it by one of two names. In the book of Acts, it's described as the breaking of bread, although many people think that reference means more than just sharing in this, but generally sharing in meals together. And specifically, in Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, it's called the Lord's Supper. Actually, more accurately, it's called it the Lord's Dinner, but it sounds wrong somehow, doesn't it? However, what is important is not the name, but the significance of what we do, what we remember when we share this bread and wine together. And I want to just remind you, or maybe you've never actually heard this significance before, uh, of what it actually means. So let's turn to that letter that Paul wrote to the Christians in Corinth. Um, it was written by a man named Paul. Now, now, Paul wasn't there in that upper room when Jesus had that final meal. He wasn't one of the disciples. The Christians he wrote to in Corinth, none of them were there either. So why were they doing it? Because the ones who did it the first time remembered and passed on the instructions to the next generation. So here we are, 25 years later or so, reading what Paul wrote to these Christians in Corinth about what it meant. And here we are, 2,000 years on, because people down the generations have remembered what this meant and have passed it on to us in our generation. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. It's page 1152. Let's just read that, then I'm going to comment briefly on it. That's what Paul says. How did he know what to do? For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you when he founded this church. He passed on these instructions. This is what he said. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, 
you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, what are we meant to remember when we do this in remembrance of him? As we share in this meal, what does it mean? Let me simply focus on verse 26, which is a kind of summary at the end of this section. What he says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Notice in this verse, very simply, there are three themes. Let me summarise them under three words. The first theme and the first word is participation. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup. The Lord's Supper is a shared meal. One in which the host invites his guests to share a meal with him. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup. Now of course, in our culture, meals increasingly tend to be fast and functional. But in the first century, as in many cultures today, an invitation to a meal was a sign of social acceptance and friendship, or to use an older word, fellowship. That's the background to this meal, the Lord's Supper. Uh, In the previous chapter, Paul has already written about this in 1 Corinthians 10. If you look at verse 16, it's a sign of fellowship. He says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? The word participation there is a word we've come across in our studies in Philippians. It's a Greek word koinonia, which means to share something in partnership together, to have something in common. And those who are invited to share in the Lord's Supper are those who are the Lord's friends. Those who are in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. There is only one requirement really to come to this table. Are you in fellowship with Jesus Christ? Is he your friend? Are you his friend? As he called you into a relationship with himself. But here's an amazing thing. As you look around the guests at the table, you discover that there are all sorts of people there who you think maybe ought not to be there former enemies and rebels against the Lord. As Paul looks around this church in the Greek city of Corinth, famous for its hedonism and immorality, he describes the kind of people they were. Here is someone who lived a sexually immoral life. Here is an idol worshipper rescued from the occult. There is a man who committed adultery. Another man who was a practicing homosexual. At the far end of the table is an ex-thief talking to a former drunkard. And that man was found guilty of swindling his employer. And that woman over there used to be a a vicious gossip. Now, would you put such people on your invitation list if you were having a meal? How can such people be welcomed at the Lord's table? Only because they've been welcomed by God and forgiven by Him. And the price for that reconciliation was the death of Jesus, symbolised by the bread and the wine, his body and his blood. Put it this way, the cost of the invitation ticket to the Lord's Supper was paid when his body was nailed to a cross and his blood was poured out. And the bread and wine are given to remind us of that fact, lest we forget how it was made possible for us to be here. But notice, we don't just look at the bread and wine. We eat and drink, reminding us 
that the life of the Christian is not that of a spectator but a participant. It is a life of total commitment to Jesus, total identification with Jesus. Jesus himself spoke about this. Uh, in John chapter 6 we have the record in verses 53 to 57. He says, I tell you the truth, it sounds very strange words. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Now he's not talking literally of course. But he's saying, if you're going to identify with me, you need to identify fully with me in my death and all that it means. So we begin here, at the cross. And we keep coming back to the cross because we so easily forget what this means. We say with the hymn writer, sing with the hymn writer, Jesus, keep me near the cross. And the Lord's Supper helps us to do that. In his commentary on 1 Corinthians, Gordon Fee writes, The Corinthians did not consider their table to be an altar where a sacrifice was taking place, but a fellowship meal where in the presence of the Spirit they were by faith looking back to the singular sacrifice that has been made and were thus realising again its benefits in their lives. But there's another dimension of fellowship as well, participation. In chapter 10, if you read carefully in 1 Corinthians, the emphasis is on the vertical fellowship, the relationship with God that we enjoy through Jesus, which Paul says excludes fellowship with idols at pagan feasts that the Corinthians were involved in. But in chapter 11, the focus is on horizontal fellowship. When you meet around this table, you meet with other people as well, with other Christians. You see, unless there are very exceptional circumstances, you cannot really celebrate the Lord's Supper alone. It's not like one of those meals for one that you get at the supermarket when you're in on your own one evening. You need other people to share with you, at least one other person. But you say, on what basis are other people qualified to share with us? Well, on the same basis that you came. You see, the ground of the cross is level ground. We all come on the same basis, only by grace we sang it. Forgiven by God's grace. The seats at the table are equally placed. There is no top table. There are no special positions for special people. All are equally special and equally undeserving. So Paul writes again to Gentile Christians in the province of Galatia and says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You see, in the New Testament, there's not even a distinction between the priests and the people. All Christians are priests. You are, says Peter, a royal priesthood. 1 Peter 2.9 So those leading the service, our associate Pastor Bill will be leading the service this evening. He doesn't do so by any virtue of any priestly office over and above everyone else. Jesus is the one great high priest and we each have access to the Father through him and through him alone. We meet together in fellowship with one another. Now of course this means that we need to be in good relationships with one another. 
if we're sharing in this bread and wine together, if we have something against a fellow Christian and we're not determined to put it right as soon as possible, maybe even after this service to go and speak to them and put it right, then we're contradicting what it means to share together around the Lord's table. The Lord's Supper is about participation as we eat the bread and drink the cup. It means fellowship with God, fellowship with each other through the death of Jesus. And when that is true, it says something very loud and clear. Here's a second word, which is in our verse, verse 26 again. Not just participation, but notice the word proclamation. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The word proclaim means to announce audibly, visibly, like a herald. It's a word often used for proclaiming the good news about Jesus. And when we break bread and drink wine together, we proclaim the focus of our faith is on the death of Jesus. I said earlier that the most important event in human history was the death of Jesus. You could say, well, surely it's the resurrection of Jesus. Well, that is vital, but unless Jesus died... There can be no resurrection without death. Others focus on the life of Jesus. His perfect example. His wonderful teaching. His marvellous miracles. But the most important event of his life was his death. The very purpose he said he'd come into the world. And this bread and wine remind us that we keep that focus. He came to die, the man born to die. Not just to die on a cross, to die, but to die on a cross bearing the curse of our sin, the wrath of God that we deserve. So the Christian's focus is not just on the Lord's death, but on the Lord's death on a cross. The cross of Christ is the focus of every true Christian and every true church. If you ever visit a church, or you spend time there, or you move house, and you think, I wonder if I should join this church, get involved in it. Find out how much the focus is on the cross of Jesus. Listen to what's preached and proclaimed. What is at the heart of this church and its life? and its teaching. In a classic book written at the beginning of the 20th century, P.T. Forsyth wrote, Christ is to us just what his cross is. All that Christ was in heaven or on earth was put into what he did there. Christ, I repeat, is just what his cross is. You do not understand Christ till you understand his cross. And earlier in this letter, Paul has reminded the Corinthians about the heart of his message. He says, Jews demand miraculous signs. They want something dramatic. Greeks look for wisdom. They want something really smart. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, the message of the cross is a very divisive message. In another more modern classic, The Cross of Christ, John Stott writes, there is no greater cleavage between faith and unbelief than in their respective attitudes to the cross. Where faith sees glory, unbelief sees only disgrace. The cross of Jesus, we've got so used to it, and people wear it around their necks and everything, but in the first century, it was the most abhorrent, stupid, ridiculous thing to worship someone who had died on a cross. It's almost a contradiction in terms to people. And yet the Christians focused on that. That was their focus. And because it's the most important thing, there's always a danger that we shift away from it. We shift away our message to something that's more palatable, more dramatic, more stimulating, 
But once we move from the cross, we're in trouble. And so knowing this danger, Jesus said to his followers, whenever you meet together, whenever you eat and drink together, do that in remembrance of me, and in that way you'll proclaim the Lord's death. And so let me ask you, where's the focus of your faith? Have you ever come to the cross of Jesus in repentance, turning from your sin, that meant Jesus had to die such a death, turning in faith to him and all that he offers through his death? Only through the death of Jesus on the cross can God's wrath be satisfied, your sin forgiven. Only through his death can you be reconciled to God. Maybe you're already a Christian. hope you are. You came to the cross long ago. But now you've moved from the cross. Your focus is on other things. Today you're invited to come again. To respond again to God's call as we proclaim the Lord's death. So as we eat the bread and drink the wine, we share in fellowship with Christ, with one another, we proclaim the Lord's death. Participation, proclamation. Thirdly and finally, notice how the verse ends. With anticipation. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we eat and drink, we look back in time to the Lord's death. As we eat and drink, we look it out and proclaim the effects of the Lord's death in our love and fellowship for each other. And as we eat and drink, we look forward to the day when Jesus will return again, until he comes. This meal is not a permanent one. It's a temporary meal or a temporary feast. In his Gospel account, Matthew records that Jesus spoke of this when he instituted the Lord's Supper. He said, I tell you, I'll not drink again of the fruit of the vine from now on, until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. You see, as we eat and drink together, we focus on this and we say, this is wonderful, we need this. For we so easily sin against God in word and thought and deed. But we're looking forward to a day, there'll be no communion services in heaven. But there'll be a far greater feast that we look forward to. The Bible talks about this in terms of a supper as well. In the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, it's described as the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lamb being the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb who sacrificed himself. This is what John said in that wonderful vision. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad. Give him the glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The bride, of course, is the Church of Christ. Now, wouldn't you like to be on the guest list for that occasion? Interestingly, Jesus once spoke about this theme, and a man in the crowd shouted out, Wow, what a privilege! When one of those at table with him heard about this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. The answer of Jesus is very surprising. He told one of those parables, the parable about a great wedding banquet. He said a certain man made this great banquet. He invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, the feast is now ready. But they all began to make excuses. first one said, I've bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, there's a lot of humour in this, I bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. No self-respecting Jew would buy five yoke of oxen until he'd already tried them out, believe me. Still another said, I, I just got married and I can't come. Kind of excuse is that. 
The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you've ordered has been done. There's still room left. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now the great news is, there is still room. There are still vacancies, as it were, on the guest list. The invitations are going out. Christ's death is not the end, but the beginning of the end. And in the meantime, we live in the in-between. That period between his ascension into heaven and his return from heaven. The Bible calls it the day of grace, a time for opportunity, and it says, there is still room, so respond while you can. Because one day the door will be shut. The opportunity will be gone forever. So, don't miss out. And the wonderful thing about an occasion like this, again, it's another day of opportunity. A day of invitation. Maybe you're not yet a Christian. Maybe you've been coming to church for some time and you've heard the message and you've still not made a commitment to Christ. Maybe you're here for the first time you've never heard this good news. Wow! Wonderful. You can simply respond in faith to the invitation that is going out to come. No matter how important or wealthy or religious you are, you have to come to the low ground of the cross. No matter how unimportant or poor or bad you may be, there is room at the cross for you. The bread and wine reminds you the price has been paid, forgiveness is available. The Lord, the host calls, but you must come. A wonderful theme. Let me say something in conclusion, really short. The Bible actually concludes with an invitation. The last book of the Bible, the last chapter, almost the last verses. This is what it says The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. The Spirit is the Holy Spirit, the Bride is God's people, His church. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. God offers you the free gift of his forgiveness. Maybe you're a thirsty person this evening. You've been searching elsewhere to satisfy the deepest desires of your heart and life. Only Jesus Christ can satisfy them. And this bread and wine reminds you that what you need is available here and it is only available here at the cross of Christ. Come today while you can. Come to this table, share in this bread and wine. Come maybe for the first time. Come again, whoever you are. Come to the cross of Christ. This is God's word. This is the wonderful invitation as we do this in remembrance of him. We're going to come around the Lord's table and Billy's going to lead us. But as we do that, let's sing another song that reminds us of this theme. 995, if you have mission praise Jesus Christ I think upon your sacrifice you became nothing poured out to death many times I've wondered at your gift of life and I'm in that place once again once again I look upon the cross where you died I'm humbled by your mercy I'm broken inside once again I thank you once again I pour out my life let's use this as a response as we come to the cross as we come to the Lord's table this evening we'll stand to sing